0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Every ethics presumes a sociology. That formula has followed me through nearly 25 years of study, and its source text, After Virtue by Alistair McIntyre, has been a constant conversation partner, as I have studied and as I have taught. What I haven't attended to nearly enough is the life of the human being behind After Virtue, but Nathan Pinkowski is here to remedy that for us. His translation of Emil Perosacine's book, Alistair McIntyre, An Intellectual Biography, walks through the where and the who and the what and the how. that got McIntyre asking the questions that have become my own. And Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him to the show. Thank you for joining us, Nathan. Thank you for having me. Well, those who have listened to, you know, me podcast over the years knows that McIntyre has influenced me intellectually about as much as any other writer has, so I won't ask for an overview introduction to his thought. Instead, I want you to talk for a moment about the grand problem of liberalism that McIntyre's work seeks to engage. What's the difference between political orders that seek goodness and political orders that merely seek to restrain evils? So I would say
1: that the, the, the abiding uh, preoccupation that uh, McIntyre has, uh, which underlines this question, is that uh, political orders that seek goodness are oriented towards a uh, common good. Uh, and those that merely seek to restrain evils, uh, those ones that, that are just seeking to do that, uh, operate with a distorted understanding of the common good. So the real issue underlying this, uh, this debate is one of the common good. Uh, what is it? and attached to that of course is a question of what uh, is human happiness or human flourishing uh, what does that look like what form does that take and what role do, does the political order play in directing us uh, toward that so that's the 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 broad question um i think though what might be just worthwhile to bear in mind too is how do we end up with uh with these political orders that merely seek to restrain evils. Uh, what's the the origin of that? And that's a big part of, of McIntyre's work. I think there are, there are two sides of it. One is this kind of uh, what, what we alluded to, this this uh this, this reconstruction of political orders that seek goodness, that focus on uh, the common good properly understood. But a big part of his work is is um, is a critical project. Ah, uh, to show where we went, uh, where we went wrong, where we adopted this uh, mistaken understanding of how we should organize our political communities, and that's what I think the the problem of liberalism is uh, for McIntyre. It's what are the philosophical assumptions that took us to that path, that, that brought us down that path. Uh, he. He uh, singles out the Enlightenment project here uh, for that and arguing that it rests on a a philosophical mistake. I think it's important to bear in mind that when we hear the term liberalism for MacIntyre, what are we actually talking about? We're talking about modern uh, liberal individualism and each of of those, uh, those terms have a role to play in it. So the modernity of it, the part I'll talk about just right now very briefly for us, is uh, the fact that this has a historical origin. It started at a particular moment, and it was based on a repudiation of a particular uh, metaphysics, a particular system of ethics uh, that came beforehand. And it made a philosophical mistake. Um, The rejection of of, uh, of, of teleology, uh, the rejection of uh, oriented ethics toward human flourishing uh, is part of that. But I always want to talk about the consequences a little bit um, for that now, uh, what McIntyre's position is. His position more or less is that bad theory produces uh, bad practice. And this search, this enlightenment uh, obsession with trying to find a justifiable morality that could be decoupled from theology produced uh, uh, moral, uh, political, social fragmentation. Uh, So in a sense, um, what happened was uh, that arbitrariness uh, in in morality in in uh, in the way that we make our moral judgments uh, triumphs uh, in the in the modern world. But what do we get from this? this is uh, if we think about the the liberal paradigm here, I'm still talking about the modern side of it, uh, what do we get from this? Well, we get an uh, unusual uh, moral theory um, called emotivism that McIntyre singles out uh, in his in his last book, he, um, Ethics in the Congress of Modernity, he calls this expression, expressionism, uh, expressivism, sorry. Um, but I'll just use the older term emotivism, because I think it makes it uh, makes it clear. Um, he's talking about a theory that doesn't really provide a moral theory that, that doesn't really provide um uh a, a justifiable account of ethics but it is a great description of of uh of how society comes to operate where we prioritize uh uh even fetishize people's uh emotional response to something and think that that is the criterion by which the emotional response we have is a criterion uh, that needs to be valued above everything else when we get this moral theory uh come to uh to to define social practice what we have is that the intensification of fragmentation. So what this produces is a kind of sense that uh, that this that this uh, this focus on emotions this focus on individualism notice how this part's now coming in in our in our understanding of what liberalism is um becomes the the thing by which a moral uh, judgment stands or falls. how well it coincides with uh, with your emotional uh understanding of the of the world And what this produces, is a a kind of um, false theory of justice, a false theory of political order that that comes uh, to dominate. And this is perceived as as, as a great thing, a great discovery, if you will. Um, And what I'm talking about here is this uh, is neutrality. Neutrality becomes the solution to our our problems. And we call this uh, sometimes fragmentation, uh, sometimes we call this uh, pluralism, uh, this becomes the the common project of what uh, of what liberal political order is supposed to to be about. Just focus on getting rid of the of the of the harms, the the evils. Uh, don't do anything higher. If you attempt to aspire for anything higher, that might be the source of disagreement. That might be the source of uh, of, of potential conflict. That all gets suppressed. So what we have is the triumph of a false vision of the common good uh, that uh, comes to define. Uh, late modernity, and a point that, that uh, Pedro Sassin raises in this book, I think, uh, which is just worthwhile to bear in mind, is there are two ways you can come at this at this uh, at this neutrality question. Right, one is um, this is the best we can do uh, because everything else everything else uh, that we attempt uh, is bound to fail. It's just too hard to do it. So this is like a, a, a real. Uh, a real kind of almost gritty realism, if you will, pessimism about the human condition. That's one way to, to view this, uh, this this liberal project. But McIntyre's, I think is is astute to a second side of it, a kind of um, optimism that gets uh, that, that takes over in this uh, in this liberal project. We might think about it in the sense of uh, you know nowadays we, we use the phrase diversity is our strength, pluralism is our strength. The sense that moral fragmentation in society is something to boast about something to say, this is what makes us, uh, what makes us who we are, right? Um, And I think that is quite astute, uh, that difference between the pessimistic reading of why we end up in this liberal, this liberal project, and then the optimistic reading, which we see uh, increasingly uh, hegemonic um, today, that what it is, is it's, um, it's, uh, it's a sense that we boast about our failure to come to uh, moral agreement, and we see uh, neutrality um, as this kind of a common project that we can all get behind and get uh, very excited about. And that's, I think, the what when McIntyre is is drawing attention to this problem of liberalism. I think he's he's emphasizing the sense that uh, as it becomes more and more triumphant, it becomes more and more dangerous. Right. Uh, to uh, moral uh, to moral communities that are actually interested in pursuing a genuine common good, because this neutrality tool becomes uh, a kind of uh, of sledgehammer that's used to crush any conversation. And here we we can just um, we can just note uh, one aspect about uh, McIntyre himself. Right, if people are criticizing uh, McIntyre in more liberal circles, they're usually focused on this on this fact of of uh, of how he identifies fragmentation and pluralism as a problem. I think that's quite telling uh, because what's often going on there is you have uh, liberal critics who want to celebrate pluralism and fragmentation, moral fragmentation as a good in itself. Uh, Diversity is our strength. Why is McIntyre against diversity? Right. And that's not really what's going on in McIntyre's position, uh, because McIntyre is trying to suggest that this is a problem. This is as a demonstration of our failure to reason properly and our failure to design a, a political society uh, properly. And what happens in in late modernity, however much in early modernity people might have been uh, attached to that pessimistic uh, reading of of the of the project that I outlined earlier, in late modernity you get the celebration of of this as a as a great civilizational accomplishment, and that's the that's the form of liberalism he's especially worried about diagnosing what the consequences of that are and how it as it becomes more and more hegemonic and as i said how it crushes other alternatives to it
0: right and one of the things that perosa seen does so well in this book is to outline how those questions uh don't just drop out of nowhere uh there are historical antecedents to them and one of them is uh changes in international socialism. Now, the first full chapter of this book reminds me that my own views of what counts as a socialist project and what doesn't is a very North American notion. So take a moment to talk to our listeners a bit about the variety of socialisms when McIntyre emerges onto the scene. What differences emerge between socialisms mainly aimed at solidarity and the socialisms mainly concerned with anti-poverty work?
1: Yeah, that's a, a great question. And I think it's one of the one of the interesting currents in the in the latter half of the 20th century that we've more or less forgotten about the form aimed at solidarity. I mean, we still use this it's kind of a cliche here and there, uh, but we tend to associate it with the anti-poverty side um, or the anti-inequality side. Um, that's the big that's what it means to be a. Uh, Socialists. It really, it's a really fascinating historical question, but if we go to the mid 20th century, when I think these questions really come into uh, in, into the, their strongest um, articulation and the dividing lines are quite strong, it really comes down to this question of what you perceive as a problem with, with capitalism. Now, obviously, we're talking about thinkers uh, here on the left who are concerned about the economic order as it progresses out of the Industrial Revolution. Um, and uh, and afterwards, so so focusing on this problem of uh, capitalism is, is is what you mean is what they mean to do, but what is what is it what is it what what is capitalism supposed to be? Uh, is it an economic arrangement um, that's destined to produce uh, poverty or inequality uh, on the one hand? Or is it a way of uh, mediating human relations, uh, you, you, um, capitalism, it means market relations means defining every relationship by consent, the market provides the sole value for what a human relation should be so consent becomes the only standard. Um, and you get different, uh, you, you get different, um, you know, normative implications, depending on what path you follow. If if you think it's just about, if you think capitalism is just about poverty and inequality, you're going to focus on those things, you're going to probably adopt a fairly, um, a fairly uh, utilitarian approach to, to politics, what's the purpose of politics, poverty reduction, and inequality, and you're probably going to uh, To have a view um, that uh, is quite favorable towards the state, right, to use the power of the state to redistribute wealth, to make that uh, Gini coefficient align better, right, Uh, this sort of way of thinking. And there are currents um, in the early mid 20th, early into into the mid 20th century, the the Fabian society, uh, for example, that think a lot in these terms. Um, and uh, you might argue that this is what uh, the British Labour Party became in the mid 20th century. What's the goal of socialism? Adopt the NHS, right? Uh, uh, raise, uh, raise taxes to better distribute wealth, use the power of the state uh, to build up those kinds of things. But I think what's important for us to bear in mind here is that that vision of, of, uh, of socialism um, was extremely contested, uh, ex- especially in England. Uh, to some extent on the continent the there that was the play too but especially in england that was extremely contested as that's what socialism was about and why is that the case well because there was a concern that if you just focused on that you dropped off the other way of mediating human relations question this question of what genuine solidarity is supposed to be what's the genuine way we're supposed to relate uh, to each other right um, and notice just to re- recollect ourselves on what uh, categories become important if we focus on, on that side of things. Uh, we focus on the problem with letting market relationships define our whole life. Uh, we're probably going to pay much more attention to critiques of instrumental reasoning, right? Reasoning for the sake of an end that might just be uh, uh, market related. Uh, We probably will have a critique of bureaucracy, right? Because uh, bureaucracies become a way of mediating human relationships that aren't uh, that uh, that 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 sever uh, genuine human bonds. Um, And uh, and that strand in in British thought might associate it more with what's called guild socialism um, and its legacy. That strand in British thought is very very attractive in the 40s and 50s when you see the the British Labour, Labour Party double down on the the other vision the kind of utilitarianism reduce poverty reduce inequality but uh suffer a kind of intellectual and also political exhaustion uh, in that time sure they win the 45 election it's a big landslide uh, but very quickly the the Tories just say okay i guess we're for the nhs too uh, we're for a lot of this uh, um uh, re- reduction of inequality and then the the wins come out of the sale of British socialism and they end up um, staying out of power uh, quite a bit in the fifties and sixties. So right. it becomes a kind a of failed, um, about this. political movement. Um, yeah, go ahead.
0: Uh, you know, I mean, when we're talking about, you know, Emile Perrault Perros, I mean, is he emerging out of this leftist context? Is he a Catholic intellectual writing about McIntyre? Uh, I mean, is he a part of the narrative at this point, or is he a someone who comes along much later and then reconstructs a history?
1: So he's he's coming much later, but um, but we could say he's uh, he's influenced. I mean, uh, you know, the thing is that anyone who's born uh, in the latter half of the twentieth century um, is influenced by uh, by leftist categories of thought. It, it's, uh, it's simply because of the hegemony that the the left enjoys in intellectual institutions. So uh, you have a certain sympathy to this. Uh, I think uh, he would have some sympathy uh, to the kind of model of socialism as a human flourishing uh, project, particularly because I think in the French context, the the vision of socialism as uh I- increasing the power of the state to mi- imidi- mitigate inequality that's more or less the way that uh the the french president Francois Mitterrand in the 1980s the great victory for french socialism when they finally come into power in that period he's definitely focused on that uh, increasing the size of the state uh, nationalizing industries but i think um uh, if we were he yeah he he wouldn't think of himself he's not someone who who's uh ex-marxist or an ex-communist uh in that sense, he's a student of PMNO, so he's influenced by Aristotelian categories. But I think one thing that's just important for us to note briefly here is if you conceive of socialism as a solidarity project, a way of mediating human relations, you're gonna be much more sympathetic to Aristotelian categories of human flourishing, of how to design a, a small community, of how to think about what the goal of human relations is, is more than just consent. Whereas the other one, as I said, it, it Lends itself to a kind of utilitarianism. Uh, you think about the power of the state. You think about uh, just lining up public policy measures and focus on, on, uh, on inequality. Right. It's, it's going to be harder in that way of thinking to um, to see the the logic or attractiveness of Aristotelian categories.
0: Right. Now, when it comes to Aristotle, I mean one thing that. Uh it's a combination that I don't think I've ever formulated in my own mind before I read this book. Uh, But when uh, Perosacine says that McIntyre McIntyre reads Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics in light of Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations, suddenly I was able to tell the story of why, you know, these three books, Wittgenstein, Aristotle, and McIntyre, have been so formative for me and why, You know, in my own story, I read them in combination. So uh, what conversations or battles was McIntyre part of so that he happened upon that Austrian and that Athenian and uh, landed, you know, in Indiana? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I
1: think uh, perhaps your intellectual trajectory... Is uh, is a lot like the the uh, the intellectual trajectory of several decades of of a certain group of philosophers who were influenced by by Wittgenstein, people who admired um, Wittgenstein's uh, uh, I think critique of utilitarianism, the the critique of a focus on uh, understanding the world vis a vis causal relations. That didn't allow for the intelligibility of of uh, of, of an agent uh, for um, for understanding uh, pre- or understanding um, the position of an agent in terms that the agent himself would understand, uh, and and there's a connection between people like that who were who were thinking about those categories that Wittgenstein had and the critical side of it, and then when they picked up the Nicomachean Ethics uh, and read those carefully, they saw um, at last here. Uh, a philosopher who was taking uh, action, and uh, was taking intention seriously. So I'm alluding to the trajectory of someone like Elizabeth Anscombe. I think would be the star, the star in this kind of uh, in in people who um, who were attracted in, by this strand of uh, of, of Wittgenstein. Uh, so thinkers who are focused on uh, on understanding uh, action, understanding intention in their own terms. Uh, not letting a uh, uh, a philosophical system of causality define uh, define what that is supposed to look like ahead of time. Uh, we can think here of uh, the way that a lot of uh, behavioralists are very popular in the early and mid twentieth century were were defining um, human relations uh, and, and human action in that time. as a as a reaction to that, the the Wittgensteinian framework is very strong uh, in in providing the in providing the critique of that. But the positive side of it is that now you can understand what what the Ar- Aristotelian project uh, in is, uh, the, and the and the way that uh, you need to have if you want to understand what ethics is, you need to have a robust understanding of of in, of intention. Um, so that's one side of it. I think the other side, those worthwhile to keep in mind too, is. Debates in the philosophy of social science, which were big in the in the mid 20th century and, uh, and and into the 1970s. And this is a side of McIntyre that we don't always know about, um, that he was a, a, a real uh, robust participant in these debates about about what uh, social science was supposed to be doing, what uh, was the idea of a social science, what were supposed to be its objectives. Because on the one hand, you have the kind of people I alluded to, people who are really are in the in the shadow of Mill. Uh, and think, let's just develop a causal system uh, for understanding the, 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 the totality of human relations. Uh, if, if it doesn't work quite right, let's just tweak the rules in our system, Find the develop the laws in a better way uh, so that it matches more on to what human behavior is. You had those people on the one side, but you also had other people like Peter Winch, who really took the Wittgensteinian uh, critique of that about as far as you could go, uh, to the point that, Um, that you uh, you couldn't say anything really about what an agent's intentions were unless you were completely or totally immersed in the setting that made those intentions intelligible so the most radical example of this is the way that uh the kind of way that that winch hints um peter winch hints about how we understand the the actions of the Zande tribe that when they're uh, when they're dancing to uh, bring rain You know, the response of the kind of enlightened, uh, the enlightened Victorian anthropologist to say, well, of course, the dance makes no sense because you can't actually dance and bring rain. It's a different cause. And he goes, Winch goes the opposite direction and says, well, we don't know uh, what the causal relationship is here between this and the rain. Uh, If we want to understand what's really going on in this dance, we have to be completely immersed in the in the culture. And here's where I think McIntyre steps in. Uh, this is where he wants to make his intervention. He wants to affirm that critique, but not go as far as Winch does. Uh, and uh, and what I would say is is just think about McIntyre's interest in Marxism uh, at this stage. Right. Uh, if you um, abandon the search for causation, if you make um, if you make it so that uh, uh, that there these rules for, for causation, these rules that are unknown to uh, to all the actors uh, involved in it, what happens? Well, there are serious implications for Marxism, right? Because uh, that basically suggests that class struggle, the the uh, the understanding causality as the transformations of relations and the means of production, as class struggle, uh, doesn't have any role to play, right? Then Marxism basically becomes a theory that's uh, that's impossible. Uh, that uh, that uh, just has no no bearing so you need to find a way to have both you need to have a, find a way to have causal knowledge that can be um that can be real knowledge independent of what the actors themselves think but on the other hand you have to have the capacity to have to um, to uh, identify the intelligibility of action and intention uh, on terms that the actors themselves, who are within certain social circumstances, that they would understand uh, and make sense of. So that's McIntyre's challenge. Can I bring both of those things in? And, and this is where Wittgenstein plays a role, but not a total role. Uh, Nicomachean Ethics plays a role, but not a, not, not a a total role. And as I think we should bear in mind too, Marx plays a role, but not a, not a complete role.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you blend those, but none of them has a total role, you get something like uh, the sentence, quote, moral life pre- presupposes an apprenticeship, end quote, which is, you know, one of the sentences of uh, Perosa scenes that, you know, I read and I thought, okay, that resonates with all of the McIntyre and all of the Stanley Hauerwas I've been reading for 20 years. Um, <laughs> it makes perfect sense to me, but take a moment to tell our listeners how this view differs from 20th century Kantian and Cartesian individualist philosophies of morality against which mcintyre is contending yes so the
1: um, i think the the big thing to uh to bear in mind here is that if you're uh if you're a cartesian your your position is methodologically established and wrapped up uh, of other things in the world at least that's the the kind of if you will this isn't a cartesian term obviously but worthwhile to bear in mind that's the hermeneutic in which you operate and so the ideas uh, that uh, you have, including moral ideas, uh, are going to be innate ideas that don't involve um, that don't involve uh, first uh, observation of the world. All knowledge for Cartesians does not come through the senses, right? That's a Thomistic uh, uh, axiom. Um, knowledge is innate. Uh, the ideas are there are innate, and we uh, we grasp them in that sense. So that's certainly not the. That's a view I think that is very conducive to uh, to uh, a subject that is uh, um, at a distance from the from the world and uh, requires the the uh, reflections of the subject to mediate our understanding of the world. And here, what we've emphasized is is this uh, this doubt of the way you interact with the world. So that's one thing uh, that certainly allows for. Uh, elevation of the of the subject and then the other side of it is the the um uh kantian side uh lots of train of thought there for a second the the kantian side in which the focus is on the heteronomy of the will uh because for kant a moral action has to be performed uh autonomously right uh the, the, you can't have someone telling you what to do or coaxing you what to do so you have to Ensure, uh, and I think the point where Kant is clearest on this is in his uh, his essay, What is Enlightenment, you have to really purge yourself of any sense in which your will might be operating in a fashion. So again, the purity of the the person giving one's law to oneself, uh, not with any help from others, not with any uh, involvement of others. That is the that is what uh, what is a requirement for morality. So again, uh, individualism here is built into the moral system.
0: Yeah, and and, you know one of the things that occurs to me as we go through there is that in so many you know serious areas of life, and I realize as I'm saying this, I'm 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 basically you know uh, borrowing passages from Plato's dialogues here. But I mean, when we talk about uh, learning the life of a carpenter or learning the life of a military officer or learning the life of a surgeon, uh, you know, most of us would say it would be just uh, madness uh, for someone to say, in my freedom, I'm going to develop my own rules for surgery.
1: Right.
0: Uh, that We would never do that. Uh, yeah. And yet for morality, you know, that, that comes to make some kind of sense to those uh, Kantian traditions. So, I mean, does McIntyre account for that historically? Uh, and if so, how? So I think he, he certainly does. And I think that he wants to see a relationship
1: between uh, the, the, these exercise of craftsmanship, um, what, what, uh, what he calls uh, practices and see that as an important aspect about the way we see uh, how we learn uh, what, what ethics is I mean the one thing that's interesting about McIntyre is just how much he does stress, even more so than, than Aristotle, we might say, um, on these uh, images of of uh, of craftsmanship and the role that the craftsman plays and the craftsman as kind of the highest example of of ethical practice. For for Aristotle, we might say the highest example is those who are involved in politics, right? Um, right, uh, right. Yeah, that's, the, that's the
0: difference between practical wisdom and art for Aristotle in uh, Book Six of the Ethics
1: yeah exactly, exactly. So there is a difference here uh, which uh, which we have to um we have to bear in mind um between Aristotle and, and McIntyre. but uh giving giving MacIntyre's uh, account of it by stressing this aspect of apprenticeship, we understand the importance of practice uh, of what a practice is. Uh, and uh, and this is one of the great innovations that McIntyre uh, makes, the, the sort of thing that even in circles wherein uh, people don't pay too much attention to uh, McIntyre, they still at least know this uh, this concept of a practice um, and the importance of it. And when we stress the importance of a practice, this this uh, this distinction between a heteronymous will, autonomous will really breaks down. Uh, it becomes uh, a distraction from what it is we're actually supposed to be doing. The question is are we doing the task well? Uh, are we performing it well? And mm-hmm. the extent to which I might uh, have uh, uh, have uh, one person helping me figure it out, or two, or twenty, um, mm-hmm. those these sorts of considerations become uh, become irrelevant. What's important is that I'm performing the, the the task well, and that I understand the setting in which I operate, for which I perform uh, this task, for what why right. I make the thing. Uh, well, for, let me pose a, a
0: historical follow up to that, because I mean. One of the forces that seems to make that move necessary is uh, Friedrich Nietzsche's work and especially the genealogy of morals, because Mm -hmm. if goodness itself is something that can undergo historical contingent revolutions, and that seems to be, you know, one of the central uh, ideas in genealogy of morals that, you know, morality has in fact undertaken revolutions and might once again undertake revolutions, then it really does become uh, imperative for people in the particular and in the contingent moment to undertake an apprenticeship, not in morality that is identical across all historical moments, but in the uh, morality that is possible in the Christian moment, in the post-Christian moment, in the moment of nation states. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, is is that Nietzschean push, I'm not going to call it influence, but uh, is that Nietzschean challenge, if you will, something that drives that in in uh, McIntyre's work? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is one of the interesting things about McIntyre is that he more or less agrees
1: with Nietzsche's critique. So I mentioned that just the start for us, that McIntyre's work has has uh, has two sides, the, the constructive side, the part that uh, that uh, we, we look at if, for uh, understanding what practical reasoning is supposed to be, what the common good is supposed to be. Uh, what human flourishing is supposed to be, but the critical side, um, the, the critical attack on on uh, on modern liberal individualism, uh, the the concern about the degeneration into uh, arbitrariness, especially th- these these are Nietzschean critiques. Uh, this is this is in effect, the Nietzschean critique of of uh, of modern moral philosophy uh, that uh, that he adopts. Uh, And I think that's very interesting, because one of the famous chapters in After Virtue is this choice between Nietzsche or Aristotle. So more or less saying, uh, we have Nietzsche's critique of modernity. Nietzsche's critique of modernity, of modern moral philosophy, of modern ethics is right. So uh, what do we do now? Do we just become full-blown Nietzscheans? Nothing of the constructive sense um wherein you just accept uh um uh, you just accept that morality is arbitrary and I, and I try to will my own tablets of value or is there an alternative and his point is that there is an alternative there is an aristotelian alternative that we can uh, adopt which uh, responds to the criticism of uh, modern moral philosophy in a way that uh, that someone influenced by nietzsche would appreciate and your point about the universalism of um of morality um uh is is an important part of it that the that there is a conceit with enlightenment with the enlightenment project that you can end up with one single moral system uh, a list of rules that will be applicable uh all over the place uh, and you structure moral life in this way and the aristotelian allows for much more flexibility much more nuance uh, based upon the kind of setting that you're in, and you, that's an important part of this concept of a practice for McIntyre. Is that it, it requires it? It 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 uh, it ultimately requires to be fully intelligible an immersion in a tradition.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's one of those interesting. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, grant at the outset completely uh, abusive of chronology points that I think that Perosa scene brings across quite nicely is that McIntyre is, at the same time, a post-Nietzschean thinker and also a Puritan thinker. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, uh, it's it's hard for me to think about the Puritans as a post-Nietzschean phenomenon, but it makes sense to say that uh, to nourish a kind of spiritual community uh, inside of a, a pluralistic uh, continental context uh, is kind of McIntyre's project. So uh, as we did, discussed just a moment ago, uh, you know, how does that small community emphasis distinguish McIntyre from political and moral thinkers, again, in that in that late 20th century moment? Yeah, I think it's uh it's a it's a great question um for us to
1: uh, to reflect on. Um, because I think this is where we see, in many sense, uh, uh, and this is partly seeing Pierre Benel's criticism of McIntyre the way that he withdraws from the level uh, in which politics are most obvious uh, to us, right? Politics uh, as uh, as Westerners tends to be most obvious, most apparent apparent for us in, say, elections. and one of these elections, they are national elections, right? Uh, thinking about candidates to elect parties, what are their policies and things of that sort. And McIntyre more or less uh, pulls away from that um, uh, withdraws from that. Uh, to focus on creating uh, small, uh, if you will, counter communities um, that that uh, develop uh, kind of irrespective of what is going on in the national politics. These are the location uh, the wherein true politics will will be possible. And again, the focus of activity is is a lot on things to do with uh, with craftsmanship, fishing well, right uh uh living well in small in small communities uh just educating well how does education work in these small communities but i think an important part to bear in mind here uh is these are counter communities in the sense that they have a subversive quality to them right we're not talking about um and this is where i think he's different from someone like uh say charles taylor uh or indeed many of the people in the communitarian movement um which with with which mcintyre was unfairly kind of lumped in with in the eighties and nineties um, that those people see the focus on communities is not something that's hostile to the broader political form in which we live uh it's not hostile to the, the nation state the sense with them is oh the nation state is is incomplete it doesn't give adequate recognition to these communities uh but we can find a way for this all to happily coexist you know and uh yeah we just need to almost what you're saying is we just need to tweak the jurisprudence of the of the country a little more, so you know Charles Taylor will will write um, these pieces on Canadian uh, jurisprudence, or the way that Canadian politics can be more accommodating for uh, the local uh, small communities. In them, uh, there's an easy kind of harmony that's built into that. There's not harmony in McIntyre's position. Uh, the The task of these communities uh, is really to subvert the political form in which they they live in, resist, subvert. Uh, call into question their authority. Call into question their their legitimacy. And these are the echoes of of uh, McEntire, the the revolutionary, right? The the socialist revolutionary in the sense of, that we talked about earlier, the sense of someone who pursues solidarity, who's looking for human relations to be mediated in a better way, uh, to be um, to be mediated not by the state, not by the market, but uh, mediated by uh, by a genuine, um, effort to discover and articulate the common good.
0: Right. And that's one of the interesting points. Uh, you know, I mean, when we think of American progressive Protestant theology, uh, you know, one of the figures that immediately comes to mind is Reinhold Niebuhr. And in a recent interview on this show, you know, uh, Gary Dorian, who does American church history said that, uh, Niebuhr's first theological thought when he woke up each morning is what should the federal government do? And, you know, uh, what strikes me is that, you know, I mean, in passing, you note that, you know, McIntyre has very little patience for that kind of liberal Protestant theology. Mm. So since the last long chapter of the book uh, bears the, the label theology, uh, you know, when Peros writes about, you know, theology, what kinds suit McIntyre's project the best? yeah this is a very a very tricky question um i only
1: met mcintyre once uh, i never was in in any uh circles with him uh, but i met him once and we had about an hour-long conversation and i asked him about kinds of theology that uh, interest him or and i mentioned a few of kind of appropriations of uh, of theology um that uh, appropriations of his project for theological ends and he sort of said well i can't make it illegal for them to do what they're doing um and i got the impression that he was uh, rather well yeah rather contemptuous to put it strongly somewhat skeptical to put it mildly of theological appropriations of his project um and i think it is important to note that his published writings uh, uh since he's become a catholic have avoided theology have not uh, discussed it. He was interested in theology as a younger man. He did write uh, on philosophy of religion uh, in the kind of stage in which he was interested in Karl Barth. He wrote on on these uh, questions, even when he uh, lost his faith in um, sort of the the 60s and 70s, um, he would still uh, offer these uh, rather scathing critiques of of liberal theology, uh, especially in the Anglican world. Uh, his critique of the book, Honest to God, right, was particularly notorious uh, in those circles um, because it was uh, it was so uh, so ruthless. Um, and But since then, he, his writings avoid theology and they stop, uh, it will, when, when the theological questions come about. And I just want to look at the ending of his last book, I think, because it lets us know what is going on here, I think. Uh, so he said he writes, so there is presuppose some further good. An object of desire beyond all particular and finite goods, a good toward which desire tends insofar as it remains unsatisfied by even the most desirable of finite goods, as in good lives, it does. But here the inquiries of politics and ethics end. Here natural theology begins. And then he stops, because I think his point is, I'm not supposed to be doing this. I'm a philosopher, not a theologian. Uh, and while well, he in occasional conferences he'll address theological topics. He's uh, he you know, he he and uh, he will cite uh, you know Charles de Koenig quite uh, favorably, right? Last year in 2021 uh, he did um in that uh, in, in that presentation he gave, um, which might imply he's a fairly traditional Thomist, right? Uh, skeptical perhaps of Henri de Lubac. Uh, and Nouvelle Théologie, uh, maybe more sympathetic to Maritain, but then Maritain was the, was the critic, uh, the target of that paper, right? So, uh, but I think it really it's important to stress it's hard to say what his what theology interests him. Uh, and while there are certainly moments where he expresses a partiality towards, uh, uh, yes, let's say mid uh, mid twentieth century um, uh, Thomism. Right. Uh, in the kind of high scholastic uh, tradition that someone like Koenig uh, would represent. He's not exactly going around writing treaties on uh, or defenses of garigou de Grange. Uh, and the ultimate point here is that McIntyre sees himself as a philosopher and not a theologian. I think that's why he ends the book in that way. As I said, just to make it clear that I'm a philosopher. I do this particular work. There are those who do theology, but that's not me.
0: Right, right. Well this uh, this seems like a good place to pivot to uh, Perosacine himself because uh, it was Perosacine's decision, I assume, to title the last chapter theology. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, talk a little bit about, you know, uh, you said that you've only met Alistair McIntyre once. Um, what 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 were the uh, what was the nature of the interactions between Perosacine and Alistair McIntyre? Uh, was he mainly a reader of McIntyre? Was he a disciple of McIntyre? How did they relate, and how did this book emerge out of that relationship? Well, yeah. So I think it's quite interesting about this book, and it's
1: one of the reasons why I think it interests uh, people beyond just uh, those who are interested in, in McIntyre. Is Pedosasin was a student of Pierre uh, and studied at Chicago uh, for a while. Uh, He's, uh, of course, he's Franco-Francais, as they say, right? He's he's, uh, he's properly French, but he studied in Chicago for a while and uh, became very influenced by uh, Straussian currents and, and Straussian categorizations for understanding political philosophy and the history of political philosophy. Uh, and I think we see this at the start of the chapter uh, in theology, where it's essentially a kind of Straussian framing of the, the political theological Oh, sorry. Theological, political problem, right? Um, that uh, that what is modernity? Modernity is an is an exercise uh, to to uh, to counter Christianity, to move out of the Christian paradigm. Uh, and uh, the question is, can it be successful in that? Well, not really, because uh, for the reasons that Strauss uh, talks about, um, you can't make uh, you you can't rest a repudiation of Christianity solely on reason. Um, that doesn't work. It requires a kind of uh, uh, fideistic, if you will, commitment to refute revelation, but you can't do that because then you are incorporating the very category that you're saying you're you're rejecting, the kind of fideistic assumption. So this is the problem sort of, baked into the modern project. And we see at the start of that third section, Perosacine's sympathies uh, with that. A friend of uh, uh once told me that after Pedro Sassin came back from, from Chicago, we had to uh, detoxify him of all his Straussian assumptions. Um, uh, so anyway, I mentioned that just so we understand that uh, Pedro Sassin clearly admires McIntyre, uh, clearly appreciates his thinking, but uh, I think the way that he views politics is closer to what the way Pierre Menon sees politics uh, and uh, therefore closer to the way that, uh, that Strauss understands uh politics so uh this book is if is in a way it's a kind of straussian critique of of alistair mcintyre
0: very good very good well this is a translation of a 2010 book and in the most recent five or six years give or take uh post-liberal and anti-liberal writers and thinkers and perhaps even celebrities uh, have become prominent in ways that would have been hard to predict 12 years ago in 2010 what elements from this book, in your view, best illuminate some of the phenomena that get called post-liberal now? Yeah, it's a, it's a it's a great question. Um, I, I've written
1: more academically on this subjects from time to time, um, but I think it's one of the fascinating things to see is how uh, is how McIntyre's insights have been picked up by. Uh, by various strands of of post-liberalism I think there's there are some common simple similarities that were worth bearing in mind you know, McIntyre famously in after virtue and, and a few other places would uh, talk about how the prevalent political parties uh in the West uh, share uh, basic agreement that the the relate the what if you will the uh, seemingly conflictual relationship between the Contemporary left and right, in fact, conceals a relationship of mutual support. And what does that what does that rest on? It rests on the promotion of individual autonomy or, if you will, modern liberal uh, individualism. Uh, So that's, I I think, one aspect that uh, post liberals have to seize upon that. That's a kind of sine qua non for providing the kind of alternative uh, to see the contemporary political philosophical landscape landscape as marked by a fundamental commitment to the same thing. Uh, the second thing I'd say is that um is that liberalism um is is something that represents a single unified theory uh, for um for post-liberals. That's indeed the way of framing the problem is that we've committed to uh, to this at some point in time uh, and uh, and this is a single monolithic concept. There's no, we we don't get an account as to there's liberalism in this stage and it's different from liberalism in that stage, right? And that's a MacIntyrean position, right? McIntyre sees this as something that emerges from the uh, Enlightenment project. Um, this, this primacy of individual uh, of individual autonomy, this uh, rejection of uh, of of ethics that has that is immersed in a social world. I mentioned the rejection of teleology, right? If this emerges at a particular time. And any effort we try to make to distinguish between different strands of liberalism and say, no, no, they're very, very different. Um, Those, those efforts ultimately collapse. So that would be another thing I'd say. Uh, And then I'd say finally that, um, that this, this concentration on the primacy of the good understanding that that is the fundamental issue. And I mean, here is not just the good, generally speaking, right. But the common good, that this is the fundamental problem with the, with with liberal uh liberal politics and what we what what, uh, we need to do is we need to develop a new political order that exits the paradigm of liberalism ultimately because those categories uh and liberal categories are uh hostile to um to the common good and we can't do so simply by uh continually readjusting the meaning of liberalism uh, that sounds a lot like um, like the the way that that communist apologists would proceed. You know, true communism has just never been
0: tried, right? And say, true liberalism has never just been tried. Has just never been tried. That that, um, that sounds like every libertarian I've ever talked to. Yeah, exactly. There's a very
1: interesting uh, parallel uh, between that, right? Um, uh, yeah, and and uh, and and I think it's it's quite telling that that as I said uh, the the. Uh, in these kinds of discussions the concern about the way of relating to someone else that might be defined wholly entirely completely by market relations and therefore by the category of consent right it's been very difficult for us to uh, break out of that paradigm we in fact just seem to be expanding it more and more and more uh, so this is why uh this is one of the, the strong points that post-liberals have about about what the modern project ends up with. It just ends up defining every single human relationship in terms of consent, and that's a market category. So can we
0: develop an understanding of the common good that escapes this, right? That's the question. Here at the end, I'd like to hear a little bit about your translation work. So when you translate a work of philosophy that does make some fine-tuned technical distinctions, um, how would you narrate your processes for finding the right phrases and terms and structures to bring that philosophy and the history across to english readers
1: yes so i think one of the big things that need to be done in translations of of uh, historical works and classical texts is is that we have to um recognize that we live in uh In this sense, I'm very, very, uh, very, yeah, very, very McIntyrean about the about the problem of education. We live in a fragmented world in which the access to other languages has dropped away Uh, just in the course of, I think, 50 years. We have ceased teaching Greek. We've ceased teaching Latin in in school. So we've lost the capacity to pick up uh, a text and kind of muddle your way through uh, in in those languages, because. In the Cultural Revolution, they were more or less uh, eradicated, and the same goes to, uh, especially I think in in North America, the same goes to having a real grasp of of uh, of modern languages too. Uh, sure, sure, we teach Spanish, but it's conversational Spanish, it's Spanish of a particular sort, and Spanish literature uh, kind of drops out, or it's uh, yeah, it's just it's a certain brand of literature that um, that is uh, yeah very myopic, um, I think. Uh, and same applies in, in french. so we live i think we we live in a in a in this moment whereby there's linguistic fragmentation. and what's the upshot of that for translation work? well i think in an older era when you produce translations you could make it more of a literary affair. you could use more florid prose, you could concentrate on on a on on elevated language even if it deviated from the meaning of the text because you knew that your reader could Uh, If you wanted to go back to the original text and kind of muddle one's way through it. Uh, So the exercise was to make a very beautiful uh, translation, say, of Livy or something, um, uh, uh, because you didn't have to. uh, You knew that if a reader really wanted to know what was going on in the text and see the particular words or phrases, that person could go right to the text itself. Um, We can't do that anymore. So I think we have an obligation as translators uh, of works of, of philosophy uh, and such uh, to focus on providing consistent literal translations, um, because that that kind of knowledge um, that allowed one to access the language is just is uh, is really vanishing from the from the West. So that's the kind of thing I aspire to: just consistency in translation. This, this work was a little different in the sense that uh pedos had kind of started it uh before he died uh he he died tragically in in 2010 um as quite a young man um and uh and uh he had more or less subscribed to something like that uh himself in, in his approach to translation so i was trying to take what he'd done and uh see how he translated certain words and phrases and just apply that whole scale uh But I would say just on the last thing on this point, this is something that's been very good about the the Straussian influence in academia, is that uh, that Straussians have provided very good translations, very consistent translations, very literal translations of some of the key texts. And that's been very, very, uh, very, very important for ensuring that the actual uh, meaning of the text is conveyed to a reader uh, who doesn't know Greek, Latin, French or something else.
0: Well, Nathan, uh, I have been at the wheel for most of this conversation. So in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let you have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about McIntyre, moral philosophy, translation or whatever else as we head for the door? Well, I think it's uh it's a it's a great question. Um, I think that
1: there's uh, there is. There, there is a, a question we should ask just nowadays, a very basic question, a very basic question that the work uh, that Pedro Sassin's book poses. Why should we keep reading uh, Alistair MacIntyre? Are some of his ways of formulating the problem of modernity dated? Um, uh, do they uh, Have they been refuted by uh, current events, falsified, if you will? I think quite the opposite. And this is partly what makes MacIntyre important for us to read for his diagnosis of of modernity. Um, I think that uh, that his book really provides uh, the kind of guiding thought of this of, of this book and of McIntyre's book is this critique of, of liberalism and to understand the dynamic uh, in the West so the, one of the provocations that McIntyre makes is is it's really a dynamic between in the modern West between liberalism and its critics between uh, the tension between freedom on the one hand and the pursuit of truth on the other and how these two interact and that's the source of the vitality. Of the West uh, and MacIntyre's engagement with that, with that question, uh, renders taut the bow, right? To uh, to use an uh, uh expression, um, and so regardless of of whether uh, MacIntyre's particular political social solutions are uh, feasible, um, there's certainly a frustration um, that Manon expresses. Um uh, that uh and i should say on that point too that that it, readers who want right now a, a quick accessible version of 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 manol's critique of of uh, mcintyre can find it on on uh, on compact um the new uh, uh journal started by matthew schmitz and uh sarah ramari they, they published uh, an excerpt from that and so if you're looking for a quick uh, a quick primer on on what Manol's critique of McIntyre is. You can go right there, right now uh, on on the web, uh, on the Internet. Um, but the, the point is that we might have that frustration that Manol has uh, with, with uh, McIntyre's opposition to politics, as we understand it, national politics. Um, and yet following his way of thinking, about alternatives to liberalism, first looking at the various strands of Marxism, being dissatisfied with that, then looking at Aristotelianism, then ultimately settling on Thomism. This is part of the excitement of, of reading McIntyre is you see someone who is always thinking uh, about what the alternative to, uh, modern liberal individualism is. And even if you, uh, even if you disagree with what particular solutions are to it, you can still be along for the excitement of, of the diagnosis. And I think that diagnosis, especially on moral fragmentation, uh, is something that is, uh, is we perceive to be the reality, uh, in which, in which we live more and more. And, uh, and that, uh, should, I think, at least attract us to the way McIntyre formulates, uh, the the question and the way he pursues it with relentless
0: energy. Nathan Pinkowski, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The book is Alistair McIntyre, an Intellectual Biography by uh, Emile Perosacine, translated by Nathan Pinkowski. It's from Notre Dame Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack, and I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.